to John Swinfield's Big Business Podcast. And now, let me introduce your host, journalist and writer, John Swinfield. Hello, I'm John Swinfield. Welcome to Big Business. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I've spent much of my life writing and making films about business bosses. I hope you find this pod gossipy, irreverent, informative, and even fun. If you like the feed, please don't forget to click the subscriber button. Big Business is on every week at 11am GMT on Wednesdays. I'd had a good lunch at the Savoy in London and afterwards rang my wife while strolling down the Strand. Minutes earlier, I'd been urged by Robin Saxby, my host and the chief executive of the science-based flyer Arm, to sell everything and to buy Arm shares. I haven't got any money, I told him. I'm at full tilt, mortgages, school fees, the lot. I'm a freelance, self-employed. I have to worry about tomorrow. Oh, it doesn't matter, he said. Just buy the shares. You'll make a fortune. Anyway, I told him, it's all academic. I'd never buy shares in companies I write or make films about. Robin and Jonathan Brooks, Arm's finance director, looked at me as if I needed to be sectioned but politely nodded their agreement. I'd like to think others in my trade acted with similar resolve. Well, I'm telling you, the shares will take off, Robin said. Pack in the job, stop making TV programmes and writing. I wrote a business column for the London Evening Standard at the time. And buy them, buy as many of our shares as you possibly can. The three of us laughed and finished the wine. It was a long time ago, 1998, and I'd become familiar with the Cambridge Science Park, Silicon Fen, as it became known, and its component companies. From very early on, it seemed to me that Arm was by far the most promising of all the Cambridge companies. I was always convinced that it had nothing less than a cosmic future. On the phone, I asked my wife what she thought of Robin's entreaties. I'd had a drink or two, and we reminded one another how often I'd heard such advice over the years from companies who were gung-ho about their prospects and which had implored me to tip into their stock. We'd have been bankrupt if I bought some of those shares, I told her, recalling the casualty rate of startups, some of which look mammoth on paper, but whose market performance was minuscule, going from boom to bust before I'd even had chance to write my column. I can't remember precisely how much arm shares were selling for at the time, maybe around the pound mark. Within weeks, they'd rocketed. Employees with share options became paper millionaires overnight. Arm quickly grew, into the shining star of British technology, one of the finest high-tech companies the UK has produced in the post-war years. My initial hunch about the company has been proved right many times over. After my lunch with Saxby and Brooks, I wrote that Saxby talked megabyte fast and that Britain's future depended on science-based companies. While technically a manufacturer... Arm was very smart. It didn't make its own products. It was, in fact, a chipless chip company, 
which had taken outsourcing to a new level and forged licensing deals with major players across the globe, with 60% of its revenue coming from licensing deals. In 1998, I wrote of ARM designing and licensing, but not making those chips. This pleases investors, I said, who are generally terrified of anything recognizable as manufacturing, which sadly is almost as true today as it was then, and is a reason so much of today's UK economy has become perilously dependent on the service sector. Instead of heavy industry, coal, steel, cars, shipbuilding and construction, the UK has the city, for which those with half a brain are grateful, a brilliant science sector, which sadly is still too small when seen on the world map, a thriving creative sector, and then the rest. Hairdressers, pubs, coffee bars, cafes, hotels and tourism. Important though they are, they can still be flimsy and transient. If the UK was more balanced economically, their place would be peripheral, not axial. It has its critics, but in my view, thank heavens for HS2, the efficiencies it will generate and the thousands of jobs it's creating. Any major capital project will always have its detractors. Had anguished caterwauling been heeded in the past, about which I am not entirely devoid of sympathy, the UK wouldn't have had airports, railways, or a motorway network. As the industrial titan, Lord Arnold Weinstock, of the once mighty GEC, told me, discussing Britain's need for a robust engineering and manufacturing core, it's all very well. Weinstock said, this much-heralded emergence of a service society. But if manufacturing and engineering continue to decline, there'll be nothing left to service. I once made a six-part TV series for ITV, which I called The Second Revolution, trying to track Britain's change from an industrial to a science-based economy, the first revolution, of course, being from an agricultural to an industrial society. But instead of evolving as an industrial-come-science economy, the UK has now become perilously dependent on the service sector. Swathes of post-industrial Britain lie fallow, industry hollowed out, and in too many places scarce evidence of science companies taking their place leaving communities barren and impoverished. Science-based companies, as epitomised by those in Cambridge's Silicon Fen, and crucial as they are to Britain's future, only employ relatively, I say relatively, small numbers. They need brains, not brawn, minds, not muscle. With the unceasing march of robotics and automation, it presents a riddle which continues to confound the UK and other developed societies. Given that ARM farms out making its products, I found it ironic that Robin Saxby had manufacturing in his veins. He hailed from a long line of nail makers in Chesterfield in Derbyshire. I was impressed with both him and Jonathan Brooks, and not just because they bought me a very good lunch. 
Brooks was down-to-earth and plausible. He didn't fall into the familiar routine of finance directors with journalists, that of talking drivel and trying to hide things. Saxby had an engineering degree and had spent 11 years with Motorola. A background in sales and science seemed to please the city. He came across as more seasoned and less geeky than some of the others. Saxby and his colleagues thought internationally, and that was not always the case even by the late 1990s. Over 90% of its sales were to America, Japan, and South Korea. Chips with everything, but not, as the writer Arnold Wesker meant in 1962. Arm was a child of time and place. There was something in the air, a predilection that lofty Cambridge intellectualism could be harnessed to trade, benefiting both academia and industry. Cambridge has become a lodestar, attracting foremost players from across the globe. Google, Apple, Microsoft and Amazon. It was estimated in 2020 that 25,000 Cambridge companies have a quarter of a million high-tech employees working internationally and in the city. Acorn Computers was established in 1978. One of its founders was Herman Hauser, who later set up the Amadeus Fund and became a stalwart of science ventures, especially in the Cambridge Incubator. On our first meeting, it was abundantly clear to me that he stood above others, some of whom looked and sounded like hucksters. Hauser had vision, he understood high-tech, and he knew about money. In the 1980s, the Acorn BBC microcomputer dominated Britain's educational computer market. Acorn was of prodigious influence. It gave a start to many UK IT professionals. Arm was spun out of Acorn. A dozen engineers broke away and set up in an 18th century barn in the Cambridgeshire village of Swaffham Bulbeck. Saxby begged desks and chairs and pushed the boat out, buying what he called a state-of-the-art phone answering machine. I was always a big risk-taker, Saxby laughed. Arm moved to Cherry Hinton, a Cambridge suburb. Its founders included the droll, clever Mike Muller, the chief technology officer. I always liked Mike. I wrote in my diary at the time, Muller has an inquisitive mind, very. He questions everything. If I said white, he'd say grey or greyish. He's not awkward. He just won't accept anything at face value. Scientists, of course, are taught to question and dissect, and Mike was just as charming as the rest of his colleagues. Arm was always open and accessible, unlike some other companies. I toyed with writing a book about Arm, drawing on extensive notes from interviews with its bosses and employees. But the company suddenly changed. A PR person had joined. He wanted everything in writing, where previously it had been a phone call. If I wanted to speak to Robin or Mike or Jonathan, I'd have to send an email saying why. Well, life was too short for that. So I shelved the book 
and I didn't know if my messages were getting through. I couldn't mention it because I didn't want the PR fired. Despite this definite souring, I retain a strong affection for the company. Among other founders was the engaging Tudor Brown, who became the president of OM. We had a convivial lunch at the White Hart in the nearby village of Fulborn, once home to a large mental hospital. It's an old Cambridge joke that certain high-tech disciples are themselves in serious need of treatment. Warren East is somebody else who sticks in my mind. Focused, sometimes quite intense, bright as a button. He took over as arms boss from Robin Saxby. During Warren's 12 years as arms chief executive, it grew to be the UK's largest listed tech company. When he left for Rolls-Royce as its chief executive, Arm had annual revenues of more than a billion dollars. I wrote columns and made TV films about Arm and gave its executives, including Warren East, media training. With a video crew in tow, I asked Warren insanely difficult questions, quite impossible to answer, in the hope that familiarity with TV and its techniques would help him deal with media inquiries, which swelled as Arm grew. He coped well. I hope my tuition helped him in some way at Rolls-Royce, which has had a tsunami of difficulties. When I first knew Arm, it had a few hundred employees. Today it's close to 4,000, with 40 offices around the world, from California's Silicon Valley to China's Shenzhen the throbbing metropolis of commerce and high-tech, which links Hong Kong to China's mainland. From Arm's earliest days, I asked Robin and Mike and others how long they could stay independent. Given Chinese and American beer moths, it always looked a tasty morsel. Rumours were rife that demand for its chips was slowing, that somebody else had a far smarter product, that it was too reliant on its chips in mobile phones. High-tech was a bubble, the critics said, a fad. High valuations were simply crazy. There was an excess of froth. Of all the accusations, the last was probably true. Hype swirled around Cambridge's high-tech companies. For every Cambridge success, there were disappointments, Risk is in the DNA of pathfinding companies, their products being novel or unproven. Whatever else these midget companies might do, they talked a great game. Arm could big it up too. In a sector dominated by colossi from California and Asia, it was imperative that Cambridge high-techers always appeared super certain, knowing that the odds were stacked against them. In high-tech, you have to seem confident to the outside world. Financially, in Silicon Fen, it was a volatile ride. The shares rose and fell, with Arm and others buffeted by this downturn or that. The high-tech bubble was always inflating and deflating, and then inflating again. It's simply in the nature of the beast. In the boardrooms of Japan and California, Arm's success was watched with surprise, envy and chagrin. 
Silicon Valley was used to big bucks and its own quicksilver mines being in command of the high-tech universe. Not some funny little company, which wasn't even in London. God damn it. High-tech egotism is the norm in Silicon Valley, and Cambridge, like Oxford, has never been immune to vanity, where a requisite degree of self-belief can quickly turn to boasting. But Silicon Fen's reputation as a hotbed of little companies with big ideas, some successful, others rather less so, had taken on a seriousness and an intent which could not be ignored. The real surprise when the Japanese technology conglomerate SoftBank banged on Arm's door in 2016 was that it had managed to stay independent for so long. There was, of course, the usual hoo-ha about a British star company being lost to a foreign predator. In 2020, Arm was taken over again. SoftBank had encountered problems and wanted to raise cash by selling its assets. It sold Arm to the American NVIDIA Corporation for $40 billion. The takeover, though, is still subject to inquiries and legal requirements. The deal was greeted with horror. It was difficult to see how Arm could maintain its open-door approach of being American-owned, especially at a time of political volatility, with America and China at daggers drawn. There was also alarm about whether Arm would remain in Cambridge, or if it would disappear into the maw of an American giant. My own view, however, is that you simply cannot accept the strengths and numerous flaws of capitalism and not expect successful companies to be taken over. In a free market and a global economy, it happens. Get used to it, move on, create another arm. Could it happen again? Yes, it's called free enterprise. To win the game, the UK must stay ahead of its rivals. Government ring-fencing of companies can only lead to the dead hand of protectionism. The UK's future is to replicate armed success a thousandfold. You've been listening to Big Business. This is John Swinfield signing off. Don't forget to click on subscribe. I'm on every Wednesday at 11am GMT.